The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Our scripture reading today comes from Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Hear God's word from Romans 3, 9 through 20. What then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jack. You may be seated. So take your Bibles and turn to Romans 8. We'll start there. We're going to move some other places. While you're turning there, let me just say it's we're excited to be back. We're also encouraged that um, some people said they're excited to see us. Carrie got a text just this morning from a mom who said her young son was excited that Pastor Josh was back. And then that was really encouraging until I heard the reason why. He said, whenever Pastor Josh preaches, we get to stay in our class longer. So I don't know if that's true. But I've been waiting three months and writing the sermon, so buckle up. I'm just kidding. Something happened two weeks ago that has never happened to me in 13 years of Redeemer's existence. A guest preacher introduced the sermon series for me. So two weeks ago, Jacob Hatfield was preaching. Remember that? Jacob pastoring up in Minnesota, a church plant we helped with last year. He stood right here. He's preaching from Ephesians 4, showing us how we were to love each other. And at one point in his sermon, he says... Something about Romans 8, and he says it's the greatest chapter in the Bible. So when I heard that, I assumed that someone had told him that we were about to start a study of Romans 8, and we were calling it the greatest chapter in the Bible. I was wrong. No one had told him that we were doing that. He had no idea. He just loves Romans 8 and thinks it's the greatest chapter in the Bible, so he said so. Now, Jacob's not the first to think so highly of this chapter. The German reformer Martin Luther said, If the Bible were a ring then Romans would be the gem that enhanced the ring, and Romans 8 would be the brilliant splendor that emanated from that ring. John Piper calls Romans 8 the greatest chapter in the Bible, and he gives seven reasons why. I'm going to read just a few of them for you. He says, There is no other chapter that combines the intercession of the Holy Spirit for us with the intercession of the Son for us in the service of the never-failing love of God the Father for us. There is no chapter that moves with such force through suffering to a crescendo of unshakable hope in the love of God. There is no chapter that deals more directly and tenderly with our struggle to know that we are the children of God, opening to us the witness of the Holy Spirit. 
There's no chapter with a more sustained litany of privileges, securities, and assurances to hold us firmly in the keeping love of God. Now, this chapter is a great chapter, and it's worth us spending the next eight weeks studying together. But beyond that, it's worth you committing it to memory. So we're going to encourage each person who's here, each each one who's a part of our church, to memorize this chapter over the next two months. This is very doable. Here's all it takes. It's five verses a week. Now, if that worries you, think about this. This is one verse a day, each day, and you get the weekend to review or the weekend off if you're overtaxed by that, okay? We've given you a, a bookmark, and it's all, it's all sort of detailed there for you. We're going to encourage you. We're going to do this together because these verses are filled with such deep gospel truth that they will become companions for us as we walk through difficulties in the days ahead. So let me encourage you, be part of this. It will be well worth it. Work on it as a family. Ask a friend to help you. Do it as a community group. Let's memorize this chapter together as we study it. This great chapter begins with a great verse, a verse that's well-loved. It's often quoted by Christians. Verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. This verse is not just good news. It's great news. It's life changing, hope-giving, perspective-shaping news. But to properly appreciate the good news, we've got to understand it within its context. And so we're going to spend this week and next week setting this verse and this chapter in context. And here's why we need to explore the context. Unless we understand the bad news behind the good news, the good news that should rivet our attention and focus our affection on Jesus Christ will simply fall flat. Here's what I mean. I went to the doctor a couple months ago for a checkup. No problems, no concerns. It was just time. Actually, it was about seven years past time, but it was time to go see the doctor. So I want you to imagine with me if the appointment had ended with the doctor saying in his most serious voice, Josh, I need you to sit down. So he sits down and he sits down in front of me. He looks me in the eye and with all the seriousness he can muster, he says, Josh, I have great news. Therefore, There is now no cancer. Okay, that's good news. But I didn't expect there to be cancer. Like, I've never had cancer. I don't have any symptoms of cancer. I have no reason to think there's cancer. But imagine if I previously had cancer. Maybe I'd gone through multiple rounds of chemotherapy, radiation, surgery. I'd been in and out of the hospital many times. Now, if the doctor had sat me down and he'd said the same thing, Therefore, there is now no cancer. Like, my reaction is totally different, right? I'm overjoyed. I'm, I'm calling friends. We're, we're having a party to celebrate that I no longer have cancer. I would walk out of that office with joy and gratitude and hope for the future. Understanding the bad news behind the good news, changes how we perceive the good news. If I don't recognize the bad news, the good news produces little more than a shrug of my shoulders. It lands lightly, and I quickly forget it. This verse is good news, but the goodness of this news is understood only when we first reckon with the bad news. Verse 1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation. That's the best news you could ever hear. But it won't change your life in perspective. It won't bring you joy and gratitude. It won't shape your thoughts and actions. It won't strengthen you and give you hope. 
unless you see the bad news behind the good news. So that's our focus this morning. We're going to look at the bad news, primarily from chapters 1 through 3, and we're going to answer the question, why were we condemned? Why were we condemned? Next week, Adam will look at chapters 4 through 7 and answer the question, why are we no longer condemned? And then the following week, we'll dive back into all of chapter 8. So the bad news behind the good news comes in three pieces. Piece number one, the non-religious are condemned because of their sin. So turn to chapter 1 with me, Romans chapter 1. I want to read verses 18 through 25. I want you to see this. The non-religious are condemned because of their sin. Verse 18, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served what has been created instead of the Creator, who is praised forever. Amen. Sometimes we think only religious people worship, right? Only those who go to church, who pray before a shrine, who attend synagogue. They're the only ones who worship, but we all worship because we all live for something. We all devote our attention and affection somewhere. Everyone centers their life upon what they find most valuable. That's worship. Today is opening Sunday for the National Football League. If you want to see pagan worship, go to an NFL game. Like it has all the characteristics of religious worship. There's a set time where the congregants gather together. They go to an ornate temple where they offer significant monetary sacrifice to be there. They have a specific way of dressing to honor their God. They They have an order of service with moments of adoration and praise. When they leave, they spend much of their week meditating on what they experienced. They even attempt to proselytize for their particular deity. But the only difference is they pay extra to sit up front. Now, I think you can enjoy a pro football game without participating in pagan worship, but don't try to tell me worship is limited to organized religion. Everyone worships all the time because we all give our lives to what we think will bring peace and happiness. We all search for something transcendent. Though everyone worships, the non-religious worship created finite things. This is the indictment of these verses. Verse 23 says, They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images that resemble created things. Verse 25 They worship and serve what has been created instead of the creator. We call this type of pagan worship idolatry. Idolatry is any time we make something or someone other than the creator of the universe ultimate in our lives. Now, the only way that human beings can justify worshiping created things, because let's just be honest, it doesn't make sense, does it? So how, how do we justify worshiping something that's created? 
We do it by suppressing the truth, verse 18. So God, verse 19 tells us, has built his world in such a way that that certain things are evident. He has made them unmistakable. But we ignore them. And we suppress them because we don't want to be told what to do. We would rather carve a piece of stone into the shape of an animal and offer incense before it, pretending that it has some power over our lives, than hold ourselves accountable to the one who created the animal and the stone and the incense and our lives. There are certain realities woven into our world, verse 20 tells us, that cannot be overlooked. And so we have to ignore them because we don't want to be accountable to something above and beyond us. Now, verses 26 through 30, they show us numerous ways that humans suppress the truth of God, numerous ways we deny what is clear, all so that we can do what we want instead of what God created us to do. One way, verses 26 and 27, is by practicing homosexuality. Now it's clear that God made a man's body and a woman's body to work together sexually. It's also clear that he didn't create it so that you could swap out a man and a woman for two men or two women. Like the puzzle pieces don't fit. This is obvious to everyone, even before they take a science class. Now, I'm not really into putting jigsaw puzzles together. I don't think I have the patience. But my my wife, Carrie, she enjoys doing it. And sometimes I'll be sitting next to her while she's doing it. And she spent all this time. And I see one piece, and I'm like, oh, I know where that goes. And so I take it, and I put it there. And almost all the time, I'm wrong. Like, it's close, but it doesn't quite fit. So what do I do? Well, I could make it fit. In my garage, I have numerous power tools. I could make this piece fit. I have duct tape. I have glue. Like if I want to, I can make this piece work. But I don't. Why? Because it wasn't designed to go there. And if I put it there, the picture will no longer look like it's supposed to look. It will no longer look like the designer intended. My forcing it to fit will not produce beauty or wholeness. This is what idolatry does. It ignores what God has designed and it tries to make things fit that don't. In the case of homosexuality, the idol behind that could be pleasure, could be meaning, significance, belonging, independence, but the only way it actually happens, regardless of motivation, is by suppressing the truth that God has revealed. Now, if we examine the rest of that list at the end of chapter 1 in depth, we would see many other examples of suppressing the truth in order to gain something we'll think, we think will make us happy. Okay, we all know, right? You don't have to be a Christian to know you shouldn't mistreat others or be greedy or arrogant, that you shouldn't fight in envy, you shouldn't gossip or slander. It's clear to everyone, no matter what culture they grew up in, that God intends for children to obey their parents for everyone to tell the truth. But we don't do these things, do we? We justify these actions that we know are wrong because there's something we desperately want, something we worship, and we think we have to go against how God designed his world in order to get it. You see, at the root of idolatry is a desire to rule ourselves and to shape the world we live in to our will. We don't want to be told what to do. 
We would rather be godless, verse 19 says, than submit to God. Like Eve in the Garden of Eden, we think God is denying us the one thing that will actually make us happy. So instead of acknowledging God, we make this value judgment, that our life will be better if we ignore his rules and we pretend God doesn't exist. Verse 28 says it this way, that we determine that it's not worthwhile to acknowledge God. The inevitable end of idolatry is judgment. The God of this universe is not neutral when it comes to your sin. He actively opposes the destruction of his creation and the disregard of his commands. He currently exercises judgment primarily in the form of natural consequences. Three times in this passage we see that God delivered them over to their sin and its consequences. Verse 24, verse 26, verse 29. This is what idolatry does. It promises something, it can't deliver, and instead it delivers death, delivers destruction. It's a downward spiral, spiral of disappointment, regret, and loss. Nothing is ever enough. But friend, the consequences aren't just natural. A day of judgment is coming when God will condemn sinners to eternal judgment. And verse 20 says, they will be without excuse. So the first piece of bad news is that the non-religious are condemned because of their sin. Here's the second piece of bad news. The religious are condemned because of their sin. As this letter transitions to the second chapter, the focus turns from pagan Gentiles to religious Jews. But the, the distinction is not primarily ethnic, it's religious. You see, the religious would agree with chapter one. They would say, yes, Josh, those pagans deserve punishment. Look at them. Look at what they're doing how they're ignoring God. Look at all their idolatry, the evil practices go along with them. They should be judged. Good for you. Good for God. But chapter 2 shows that this condemnation, it extends beyond the non-religious to the religious. Now you can imagine the religious, they didn't like this message because they tend to review, view themselves as morally and spiritually superior to those who are not religious. And Paul captures this Paul, the writer of Romans, captures this as he, as he sort of puts in their ta- mouths this, this self-identification. I want you to listen to this. Chapter 2, verse 17. He says, Now if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are superior, being instructed from the law, and if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law. See, this is, he's capturing how a religious person views themselves. Do you see this? And some of the description is accurate, right? Relying on the law of God's a good thing. Boasting in God, knowing his will, approving what is right. These are all very good things. But the second part is where this starts to crumble. Because the religious then start to compare themselves to the non-religious. They see the non-religious as those who are blind. They're in darkness. They're ignorant. They're immature. While notice how Paul says the religious view themselves. That they're a light. They're an instructor. They're a guide. They're a teacher. And so compared to the non-religious, the religious, they look pretty good. But hear this. The life of the non-religious... The life of the pagan, of the unbeliever, is not the standard that God uses to compare us to. He uses his law. 
And how does a religious person look now when instead of being compared to that non-religious person, they're compared to the law? Look at verse 21. You then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For, as is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. See, the religious love to judge and condemn others for breaking the very same law they break. This is why Jesus so often called the religious around him hypocrites. They judged themselves in relation to the worst lawbreaker, like the Pharisee looking at the tax collector and saying, God, I'm so glad I'm not like him. Instead of acknowledging all the ways that they failed to obey God's law. He says, do you teach another? Verse 21, but do you teach yourself? Do you practice what you preach? So I remember one Sunday morning, a number of years ago, I was about to get up and preach, and we were taking the offering. Earlier that day, I'd written a check, and I had I'd put in my, in my pocket, because I was going to put in the offering later. And so the offering plate was about to come by, and I decided I'd often hand them to one of my sons to put the check in the offering plate. So I took it out of my pocket, handed it to one of my sons. He opened up the check, didn't even look at it, took his gum out, put it in the check, wrapped it up, put it in his pocket. And I, I'll be, my instant, I was so annoyed. I was so angry. Like, what, what are you doing? You know the worst part? You know what the sermon was on that Sunday? Anger. <laughs> I was literally to get up and preach from Matthew 5 about the sin of anger. And I'm angry because my son decides to destroy our offering with his gum. Right? We are such hypocrites. I'm such a hypocrite. I break God's law. You break God's law all the time. We don't practice what we say we believe. We say don't steal. And then we shade the truth just a little bit because we want to get something from someone. We say don't steal and yet we rob the Lord. We rob our family of time. We say don't steal and then we accept praise for what we know God has given us and what he's done for us. Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, he boiled all of God's commands down to two. Just two. Right? That shouldn't be too hard, right? We can do two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then love your neighbor as yourself. How'd you do this week? Because I failed on both accounts many, 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 many times. You know, actions have consequences. And what is the consequence for breaking God's law? It's to be judged by the law. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. For all who sin without the law will also perish without the law. Talking there about the non-religious. And all who sin under the law, the religious, will be judged by the law. And the law, the standard that God put in place judges the religious person as guilty because even though they have the benefit of knowing God's law, they violate it. And the sentence is death, separation from God and all of his blessings forever, the blessing of his presence, condemned to a Christless, joyless eternity. 
So here's the bad news. Both the non-religious and the religious are condemned because of their sin, which leads to the third piece of bad news. Maybe it's overkill, but we need to hear it. We are all condemned because of our sin. We are all condemned because of our sin. Every person, regardless of background, race, religion, or creed, is a sinner. Look at verse 9. Jackie read it earlier. What then? So are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jew and Greeks, they're all under sin. Now the Apostle Paul, the writer of Romans, he now, in chapter 3, strings together just a series of Old Testament sayings to show that God has always been clear about mankind's guilt. These statements come from the Psalms and the Prophets, and they reflect the consistent teaching of the Bible from beginning to end. And he begins by assuring us that our sin, listen to this, our sin is not simply passive neglect. Like, oh, yeah, I should have done a little better. Our sin is active rebellion against God's will and his word. Look at verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Not only is our sin active, but it's comprehensive. It is far deeper and more pervasive than we even realize. He begins with our speech and he compares our mouths open graves. And he says, your words, our words are like the stench of the dead. He says, we bite and poison people with what we say. We come to church on Sundays and then we go home after singing about God's grace. And we use those same tongues to criticize and condemn people throughout the week. I want to personalize these next verses as we read them because they're for us. Verse 13, our throat is an open grave. We deceive with our tongues. Viper's venom is under our lips. Our mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. It continues, our sin is not confined to our speech because after we speak, we then act out what we say. We hurt other people, and in our wake, we leave pain. Verse 15, our feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in our paths. And at the root of all of our sin is a desire for self-rule. We live as if we are God. We ignore God's will, his wisdom, his justice, his laws. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before our eyes. And just as we saw in chapters 1 and 2, our sin brings condemnation. We will each stand before God as lawbreakers, unable, it says, to even open our mouths. The guilt will be so clear. And there we will receive the punishment our sin demands, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law for this purpose. So that every mouth may be shut. No defense, no excuse. And the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. So in the face of this, what hope does any of us have? What if we decided to start over? And we said, okay, from now on, from this point forward, I'm, gonna, I'm really going to do my best to obey those commands. Like what if, we, what if we even from this point forward perfectly obeyed and followed his commands? Would it be enough to keep us from condemnation? Look at verse 20. 
For no one will be justified in his sight by works of the law. No, you cannot. You are unable to justify yourself. There is no hope in simply doing better. Now, friend, I know this sermon has not been the most encouraging. Like this has probably not been the most uplifting. You probably did not wake up this morning and say, I can't wait to get to church to hear about how bad I am. I hope Josh talks all morning about judgment and condemnation. If you thought that, that's strange. Let me ask you a question. If you go to the doctor, do you expect him to tell you the truth about your medical condition? Or do you hope he's so nice that he lies to you and he minimizes what's really going on? Dishonesty is never nice. You need a doctor who tells you what you need to hear, even if you don't want to hear it. See, in these first three chapters of Rome, God diagnoses you and I with a terminal sin condition. And the sin is advanced. It's spread throughout all of us, our body, mind, and soul. And this outcome is certain. In a sense, these first three chapters throw their hands up and say, we're out of options. Nothing else we can do. No treatment we can figure out will eradicate this virus that is destroying you from the inside out. The case seems hopeless. But we probably wouldn't be here if we were hopeless, would we? We know it's not. Next week and the weeks to come, we're going to see what God has done to bring us to health. But I don't want to end this morning without at least a brief glimpse of this remedy. Look at verse 23. For all have sinned. There it is. There's the diagnosis. And fall short of the glory of God. Then there's a semicolon and the strangest next phrase. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You cannot be justified by any work you do, but you can be justified freely by the grace of God given to us by his son, Jesus Christ. This is the good news. This is the best news. And this is where we all want and need to end up. But it is so important for us to really, truly consider the bad news behind the good news. To not run so fast to the good news that you fail to understand if you're not a Christian. You need to understand exactly what your condition is. And if you are a Christian, you need at times to stop and remember what your condition was apart from Christ. Yesterday was the 20th anniversary of the attacks on September 11th. If you're old enough, you can probably remember like I do exactly where you were when you heard about it. I was in a car, driving to work. I was listening to sports radio. At first, it seemed like something small, like maybe someone in a small plane had just made a, a tragic accident. But by the time I got into the office, realized it wasn't an accident. I remember there, we, we pulled out the old TV, you know, on one of those rolling carts and plugged it in and turned it on. And we sat there the rest of the morning watching this, this thing that was just even hard to fathom what was going on, right? I can still remember the feelings on those days, fear and uncertainty, sadness, loss, 
and later the courage, the resolve, even the joy and pride that came from stories of sacrifice, stories of rescue. Now, we've talked with our sons, all of them born after that day. We've talked with them about what's happened on 9-11. We've watched specials together. But I'm certain of this. They don't understand it and appreciate it like I do. They're grateful in this sort of surface sense for the good things, the reports, the stories of bravery and rescue. But they don't understand it in the same way because they do not know how dark that day was. The darkness of that day is what made the sacrifice by so many policemen and firemen shine so brightly. Listen, it is the darkness of our sin and the bleakness of our spiritual state that makes the grace of Jesus shine so brightly. And so it does us good at times to think deeply about our condition before and apart from Christ. And so I want to do that right now. I want to take a few moments of silence. There's going to be no music, no talking, hopefully no distractions. And I want you to think about what it means to be apart from Christ. I want you to reckon with the bad news that makes the good news so good. And so let's take some time right now to do that. Father, as we reckon with who we are, who we honestly are, apart from Christ, there is a heavy sense, a heavy weight of our inadequacy, of our inability. There is, apart from Christ, a hopelessness. But Lord, help us to see the grace of Christ that shines so freely. And we are not without hope. Our hope just simply is in ourselves. It's not in our attempts to justify ourselves. Our hope is in the grace so freely given through Jesus. May we be serious about sin. May we be humble about our own sinful hearts, but may we be filled with joy and hope and confidence because our righteousness is not found in our own efforts, but in Christ alone. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.